morning, everybody. So our first uh, song this morning for us to consider and meditate on, I think um, you're probably all getting used to us saying we live in strange times now. I was going to say the exact same thing, but uh, Peter beat me to it. Um, but as I meditate on the service this week, it really seemed to me that the thing we need to do the most right now is come together around those things that unite us as believers, that unite us in faith, and that unite us in the hope we have. Um, there are many things that people can and do disagree on. Some are more important than others. But ultimately, our hope cannot be in those things. They have, it has to be on the rock itself. It has to be on Jesus. It has to be in his word. So let's just start with um, just a consideration. I'll, I'll read the words. I'll try not to super spread so I get mad sick or anything here. In the, um, of how firm a foundation. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Spend a moment considering those words and considering how God is giving us an opportunity for refinement even in hard times. first reading today is in the book of Ezekiel as we go into the final chapters of Nehemiah and consider how God brought his people back to himself from exile. Um, readings, we chose to really show God's power in restoration, God's power in knitting people back together, God's power in bringing the gospel to bear on all of us so that all of us can receive um, his restoring life and mercy. First readings in Ezekiel 37. Uh, there's a bit more of the prophecy in your text. I'm just going to read the first part of that, but uh, continue to read the rest. It really only makes sense when it all hangs together. Ezekiel 37 and 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me among, around among them, and beheld there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know 
that I am the Lord. The second reading um, looks forward to something very similar uh, from the book of Romans. Um, This is Romans 11, near the end of the book, starting in verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who are at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Know the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Our second uh, time of meditation this morning is on in Christ alone. I'll just... uh, I'll just read the verses, and then we can consider them with the music. Um, Again, this is a powerful song of unity. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Father, we come into your presence this morning as we prepare to hear your word. 
Lord, I ask that you would continue to work in us and through us, even though we can't be together as we usually are. Lord, I thank you for the protection you've given our church. I ask, Lord, that you would continue to bless and protect us. But more than that, Lord, I ask that you would continue to unite us in the gospel. Help us to see Christ more clearly, to let him shape us um, more thoroughly. I ask, Lord, that you would give us the power to use what each of us are experiencing through this time to further your kingdom um, in our lives and the lives of those around us. I pray for your blessing on Matt, and I ask that you would speak through him as he would preach your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, each week we have good reason to thank the Lord for the opportunity uh, to gather together, whether in person or electronically. Every person who is a part of this through either one of those means is equally a part of what we are doing uh, here. And we look to the Lord for His grace uh, in continued work in all of us as He encourages us through one another. Um, I wonder how many of you had the experience of growing up going to camp in the summer. Especially, especially Christian camp. Maybe some of you didn't grow up as Christians and so went to some other kind of camp. Um, but if you went to Christian camp in the summer, then you may have had an experience similar to the kind of experience that I had quite a few summers while I was growing up. Uh, many other people as well who would go up to Hume Lake and spend a week there. And there were a lot of the, the sort of typical camp experiences that you would have there, and if you had gone there, then then you would experience sort of the, the the fun and the energy, and just kind of a unique environment. In this case, up in the mountains, separated from everything else. Uh, in the context of being separated from everything else, you would have the opportunity to sort of reevaluate your life in light of Scripture, in light of what Christ had done. You would be invited to make commitments that are suited to where you are spiritually. For some people, maybe that's coming to Christ for the first time. Maybe some people it's realizing, you know what, I haven't really been living as the Christian I claim to be, and I want to commit myself to living under God's grace in light of what I've heard here. You would have maybe experienced the thing that Hume called Victory Circle on Friday night, where people would come together around a campfire and share the kinds of things that God had been teaching and revealing to them, and the commitments that they had made. It really felt like victory. And in many cases, it, it really did reflect a victory that God had accomplished during that unique time of being set aside from the normal distractions of life to evaluate, where am I at? What am I doing with my life? And what do, what do I want to do with my life? And I know that for me, there were, there were times of those commitments at camp uh, that really did have a life-shaping impact on me. You might also have experienced, if you went to summer camp and sort of experienced that, that high, the experience also of the following Monday morning. And your mom wakes you up and says, I'm glad you're home. I have some things for you to help out with. I have a list for you. And it's this list, and you think, oh, Good grief. 
clean the hall bathroom, vacuum the living room, dust the living room. Oh, and you hear her say, yeah, don't forget to move the lamps. Don't just dust around them. Dust. Dust isn't even real. You made this up. I don't understand. This does not feel like the victorious Christian life. And it is. It is the victorious Christian life. A very important part of it. You are now committed to living under the covenant love of God. You're committed to living in victory. Christian victory. And this is where most of that happens. On Monday morning with a list. Here, among God's people in Nehemiah 11, it's about to get real. They have gone through the formal part ceremonial part they've said the words all that should have happened it was right that it happened it was right that they celebrated the victory of God together it's as it should be and it is the beginning of the victory not the end it's not the bulk of the living out of the victory they've gathered together to celebrate God's steadfast love his grace his covenant commitment they've gathered together to commit themselves to living under it and now it's Monday in Nehemiah 11 now real life happens and we get down to the mundane and important details of for instance where people choose to live lists don't have the action that so easily catches our attention like stories do and there are many of those in the bible that catch our attention lists don't quite do that but in their own way every one of these lists that's in the bible points to what matters they have different ways of doing that every list in the bible has a purpose and we pick up some of that purpose by looking at what's in the list it's content and we Pick up some of it by looking at the context. Where is this list put? And we'll, we'll gather a little bit from both of those clues this morning as to what are the values that this list is here to, to push out to us this morning, where we are. This particular list points to what matters, I think, when it comes to the long haul of daily life that doesn't always feel like victory, but is. There really, I think, are three values that this list in its place demonstrates. I'll mention them first, and then we'll just go through them. The first is that leadership lives in the middle. I'll explain what I mean by that. Leadership lives in the middle. The second is that the king knows your name. Leadership or otherwise, the king knows your name. The third is that today happens on God's timeline. So crucial for us to remember, and I think it's emphasized by the way this passage is put together. Leadership lives in the middle. The king knows your name, and today happens on God's timeline. We need all those things for the long haul. First, I just want to read verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. 
And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. What's going on here? People, some people, are choosing to live in Jerusalem. It's as if the whole nation is tithing itself so that some of them will live in Jerusalem. And it's not an easy choice to do that. A few people, at least, are willing to do that. Other people, at least as a nation, are willing to say, if the Lord very clearly calls us to do that, we'll do it. So let's cast lots. It's sort of like rolling dice to figure out which of us are going to live here. Why is that a big deal? We get one picture of that. We got one picture of that from chapter 7. Verses 1 through 4. It's a little bit earlier in the story, but gives us part of the picture. Nehemiah writes, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. The compromised place, still in trouble. The infrastructure is not put back. It's a challenging place to live. And now the wall has been finished. But the wall being finished doesn't change the attitude of the people who had so vigorously opposed the wall in the first place. This is a place of trouble. The leaders we see are the ones who expose themselves to the dangers of living in the middle of that action. They're, they're identifying themselves with this new program that's been so opposed from the very beginning. Leadership lives in the middle. Not, not in the middle in terms of sort of posturing themselves by compromise of standing there and trying to figure out how can we appease everybody around us. They live in the middle of exposure to trouble. So often, that's what it takes for leadership to do actual leadership. And it's interesting to see how the people respond to those, particularly those who willingly chose uh, not only to come there, but to live there. We read that in verse 2. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Why'd they do that? It was a question that came to my mind when I, when I read this. What's, what's that all about? I think it's because they understood the cost of what it meant to live in the middle of trouble. Not just for a minute, they set up their house there. That, that's relevant for us today. As we as a church try to, try to move forward as we try to care for people with a variety of different concerns. 
the process of doing that is not always going to be simple. Sometimes it's going to be complicated. Sometimes it's going to be hard. And there are going to be those, there, there needs to be those, who are going to invest themselves in evaluating options for how to do that well, how to move forward as a church well. What are we going to do? And how are we going to do it? And how are we going to care for people whose deep heart yearnings sometimes feel like they're in conflict with each other? They're not, but they can feel like they are. They can feel personal. And leadership needs to live in the middle of that challenge. There can be those who invest themselves in the process of evaluating options and weighing concerns and taking action. And doing that is going to require people to open, open themselves up to certain risks. Happened for the people who chose to live in Jerusalem. It's going to happen today. What does it take to do that? Well, using the language of Nehemiah 11, uh, for, for people to do that in the time of Nehemiah 11, the kind of language that's used is in verses 6 and 8 and 14 when, when the author refers, in this case, to valiant men. It talks about 468 valiant men in verse 6. Men of valor, 928 in verse 8. Now, we might jump to conclusions about what that means. Certainly in, in this particular context in Nehemiah 11, it might mean somebody who knew his way around a sword. That's possible. Somebody who could physically fight to protect his people. But it wasn't necessarily limited to that ability. It could also refer to somebody who is noble and capable and wise, somebody who can, who can, who's prepared to handle this kind of situation. Bring that back to our day. We're not really concerned in this case about somebody who knows his way around a sword. But we, we do need people, uh, particularly those who are going to live in the middle with this exposure to trouble, who are capable. And the way God defines capable for church leadership is different from the way the world defines capable. Elders, shepherds in particular, need to be men. We, we see from the lists in the New Testament, they need to be men who are clear about who they're fighting for and who they're fighting against and who they're not fighting against. They need to be characterized by the wisdom from above so that they can be the kinds of peacemakers who plant a harvest of righteousness like James describes. They need to be willing to hang in there for the long haul of sometimes mundane, sometimes scary life that it takes to make good progress together. That, that need to stay in the middle where you are exposed to risk is is one reason for the kind of character requirements that are laid out for elders in the New Testament. Uh, they need to be people, for instance, who are not lovers of money, whose, whose priorities are not polluted by something that's going to make them prone to being deceived by something that will never deliver. They need to be, if I go back to the King James, uh, people who are not pugnacious, 
People who are not spring-loaded to fight, but people who instead are prepared to stand in the middle. This is described in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 as well. Paul writes to Timothy, who, who was in the middle. He tells him in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, or yeah, 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. There are currently, in terms of people who are doing this on a volunteer basis, there are six men who are serving as elders at Grace, who are standing in the middle. And I've had the opportunity to talk with them and watch them through this process. None of the six men who are standing in this place would claim to have arrived in any of these areas of capability. That's not the point. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about somebody who is conscientiously headed in this direction and is known to be somebody who is. And I've had the opportunity to know these men as men who lean in this direction, as men who lean in the direction of, of doing the hard work of determining not just how can we keep people happy so we stay out of trouble, but what is really best for the people at Grace. We don't have the luxury of being personally all-knowing so that we can just figure it out and know for sure. But I've seen the elders walk within the scope of the limitations of not knowing everything and work to do the heavy lifting, sometimes through three-hour elder meeting conversations, uh, supporting one another and pressing one another to care for you. I, I, I hope that you have felt that as well. Uh, I, I want you to know that that, is, that that is happening. And so our elders are in a good place for you to come alongside them and bless them for that kind of work that they're doing. Bless them first and foremost by asking that God would, that God would empower the work that they are seeking to do. The work that they feel their own limitations in their ability to carry out. Ask God to help them. Many of you are. Maybe all of you are. If you are, I just want to encourage all of you to continue doing that. That's one of the key ways that you can be blessing these men who are giving themselves for you. Who, in a sense, are willingly choosing to live in Jerusalem right now. There are many other people who are giving themselves to taking risky action by moving forward as well. As you see people doing that, I want to encourage you to, to bless them. There are different ways to do that. Pray for them. Pray that God would take their work and help them to see something good happening as a result. Another way to do it, just within your own heart, within your own mind, is to assume the best. As people try to take action, as they try to do what's good for others around them, assume the best. In a 1 Corinthians 13 sense, believe all things extend the benefit of the doubt, give yourself the space in your own mind to think, I bet that person's thought about what they're doing. 
Maybe not perfectly, but I bet they have. Assume the best. And then at a very active level, to the extent that you're able, take action to support what they're doing. Uh, maybe it's in a little one-time way. Uh, maybe somebody is, is working to, uh, to invest in the youth at Grace. We'll come back around to that. Maybe somebody's trying to do that. Maybe there's a way that you can support that um, in a 30-second way. Maybe there's a way you can support that longer term. But to come along, alongside somebody who's living in the middle of the risk uh, imperfectly and to say, I, I want to do what I can to support what they are doing. Leadership, whether shepherding or in, in one of the many other capacities in which that takes place at Grace, living in the middle, leadership matters. And it matters in large part because everyone matters. Every person matters. Leadership helps to keep everybody together participating in the same kingdom where they can matter to each other. That's really the next big value. Leadership lives in the middle and the king knows your name. Not everybody's called to, to be involved in leadership. The, the Bible never says that everybody is. There is a good, God-given, God-known, God-loved place for every person who's a part of the kingdom. And if you're in there, the king knows your name. I think that's a key theme with the biblical lists in general. That God finds it worthwhile to name the names of the people who are part of his work. Even names that you can't connect to anything else that you know of. I think that we have seen this impulse, this, this impulse to use names to acknowledge that someone matters. We've seen that even recently over the last few months with phrases like, say her name. Certain people's lives have been treated as if they don't matter. And so there's this sense of saying, we want, we want to make sure that that happens less and less. We would love to see that not happen anymore. So when there's somebody who's at risk of being forgotten, say her name. And God does that with his people. The Bible does that with God's people. They're still here in Nehemiah 11. They're still here, which is, there's no way to explain that on merely human terms. God has done this, and they are still here. And they're not only listed by numbers, they're listed by actual names. God, in Nehemiah 11, is building his kingdom through people. People like Athiah and Maaseah and Salu and Jediah and Sariah. I have no idea who those people were, except that they're listed here with some of their roles. Bring that back to today. How is God developing his kingdom? How's God developing his household and the people in his household? He's doing it through the people in his household. He's developing you and me through you and me. That's made really clear in a passage that's worth returning to over and over again. We spent some time in it. Uh, not many months ago, in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. 
And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What is that? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's an all of us thing and an each of us thing. Each of us investing in some of us so that each of us is touched by the lives of other people within the body. Sometimes that feels so transparent that it can almost feel like it's not even happening. But it is. Even if we don't notice it, it's worth reflecting in order to remember this on the question of what did it take for you? What did it take to get you where you are today? What normal people served in sort of daily ways as bridges in your own spiritual development? Who did the Lord use? Uh, maybe a person whose name isn't recognized by anybody else, but who did the Lord use to bring you to himself? Who did the Lord use to shape you to where you are today? I was reflecting on that this week, and it was helpful to remember. Uh, to remember people like Steve, who was a leader in my high school group uh, in Fresno. Um, to remember a guy like Dan, who was a, a junior high pastor at a church that I attended while I was a sophomore in college, who gave me the opportunity to help out, uh, gave me op an opportunity to lead a devotion, who had lunch with me uh, at, at the school. Uh, think of a guy like Mike back in Fresno when I was young and married and saw him as somebody who was a generation ahead of me and who met with me and cared for me. A guy like Jim, who was an elder at our church in Cedar Rapids. You don't know any of them. Now, you might not, this side of eternity. None of them was a superhero. And none of them lists their influence on me on their resume. None of them says, I knew Matt C's when. This was all, in one sense, very mundane, but every single one of them bridged a gap in my spiritual development. And they did it by their daily faithfulness and their daily care. They, they knew my name, and it mattered to them that I was there, and I could tell. And for each one of them, I can see, to this day, their smile. In a sense, I can hear them saying, hey, Matt, and I knew that it mattered to them that I was there. And as I reflected on this, I realized that in each case, each one of these people gave me an opportunity with all of my foibles to serve. It wasn't simply they poured into me. They allowed me to move into serving others as well. And there was a gap that was bridged there for me that if it weren't for them and if it weren't filled by someone else, it, it it would have been significantly missing. And all of them may have forgotten about what they did, but God has not. You, you have an opportunity to do this as well. And I want to think in particular 
for us at this moment about those who are young in our church, those who are developing right now. We have a, a wave, a relatively large wave for the size of our church, of students who are entering middle school and then high school. And you have an opportunity to bridge a gap for them. You might do it like Steve did for me by being a, a leader in some form in, uh, in the youth group. As he was able, he opened his home. I can still remember kind of his smile and his care. You might be called to do that. You might do it like Harold did. Uh, Harold was a man who was not a leader, but Harold was a man who was there, who had a handshake like an iron grip, and who had this warmth that sort of emanated from him enough to make me about as uncomfortable as his handshake did. But I still remember Harold, and Harold was there. So you can be there, and Harold knew my name. So we want to get down to real concrete, practical steps. What will be next for each one of us at Grace? Know their names. Take it as a directory challenge. Make a game out of it if you want to. Is there somebody at Grace, somebody in 5th through 12th grade, whose name you don't yet know, that you're not yet familiar with? Make it a challenge to know their name. If you are able to see them, address them by name. If you're not able to see them, then perhaps find some way to reach out to them by name. Sometimes it's on a programmatic basis. Sometimes it's in the way that Harold did it, standing in the back of the room, and I knew he would be there every Sunday. The king knows their name, and it's worth it to him to know them. And it is good for us to know one another's names as well. <clears throat> There's another expression of the way the kingdom works here in this passage that's, that's really worth noting. It's not only people who are named. It is places that are named also. We see that in verses 25 through 36. Jerusalem is not the only city that's named. The author also names the other places where people lived. The people blessed those who willingly chose to live in Jerusalem, and with good reason. And you'll notice from the perspective of the author, there is no belittling of those who don't choose to live in Jerusalem. Their towns are worth mentioning by name. Where they live and the fact that they live there is a good part of what God is doing. Their towns are worth naming. Jerusalem was, as it's called in verse 1 and verse 18, Jerusalem was the holy city. It mattered in a special way. But it was not supposed to be like Babel. Remember, remember what people were trying to do in Babel? They said, come on, let's, let's make a city and build a name for ourselves so that we won't be scattered through the earth. Jerusalem is supposed to do the opposite. Jerusalem is not supposed to be the place where power is concentrated. Jerusalem is supposed to be the place from which the kingdom spreads out. And you see that happening when the towns are named. These are towns like Kiriath Arba 
and Dibon and Jeshua to the south and towns like Geba and Michmash and Ijah and Bethel to the north. These are towns that perhaps had been abandoned or maybe repopulated when people were living under the results of their covenant unfaithfulness. Towns that hadn't been what they used to be. And now as you watch this map of Jerusalem and the towns around it, you start to see pins get placed in the map. And each one of these places that's named, and you watch that map expand, and you see that what's happening is you really see a very tangible picture of God's faithfulness to his promises. His promises all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18, to your offspring, I give this land. And now, even after people had been taken away from it, it's being given back. And you see those pins pop up one after the other as these towns are populated. And there's a spread of the kingdom out from Jerusalem. God had preserved the land from one generation to the next and had preserved the people from one generation to the next in order to give the land back to them. And that really brings us to the the third value that I think we see rise to the surface in this passage, and that is that today happens on God's timeline. That is so important for us to remember today. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to imagine His people. God is the one who's holding this all together. He hasn't gotten tired and he hasn't given up. <clears throat> That's for us today as well. I've, I've found myself uh, during this time rotating between um, being pretty amazed at seeing the Lord providing on the one hand and on the other hand feeling like I could ruin this all. Maybe you've rotated between those ways. I see the Lord providing. I could ruin this. Or they could ruin this. Maybe that's what you're seeing. Our story starts well before this. And someday we will look back and see the crisis of the present moment, however you're experiencing it. We will see it as part of a much longer story than this part of the chapter that we're living today helpful sometimes both to think back a long ways and to think God has been astoundingly faithful to me and to us. He was faithful to me by preparing generations before I was born to bridge the gap for me now and he's not going to stop. And so as you look backwards, think forward as well. Think five years in the future, 15 years in the future. What might it be like for me then to look back on this time now, especially given the generations-long proven faithfulness of God to me. We have good reason to say, whether we're living in the city or populating the villages, we're going to stay here together. The 
kingdom is expanding from here. God's in charge of doing that, whether we can see it or not. And you never know how God might use your daily faithfulness that feels like mom's list on Monday to grow and expand his kingdom, to fill the gap for the next generation, or maybe to bless someone who's standing in the middle exposed to trouble. Where do we find our real hope for why it's possible to do that in the first place? If we're left to ourselves as sinners, there is no real hope. But all of this is possible because the king of the kingdom has stood in the middle of the trouble and still stands in the middle. And that's all described in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. Mediator is someone who stands in the middle. One mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That king stood in the middle for you and for me, all the way to death, defeated death on our behalf, and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for you, interceding for me, so that we can know as we face the trouble that we face that we are heard and that our names are known. Father, would, would you open our eyes to the, the, the significance, the importance, the value that you place on daily faithfulness to one another, daily care for one another. Would you, would you help us uh, to stand in the middle to the degree that you've called us to do that? Would you help us to care for one another? Uh, help us to remember that you know our name and that you know one another's name, that each one of us is significant in your kingdom and help us to bridge the gap for one another in our development. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.